This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Philippians chapter 1, verse number 27. Uh, let's take a look at that. Again, context here. Uh, the Apostle Paul, a church that he pastored for, uh, for a while, moved on. Ten years later, he's in prison, writes a letter back to them of love, gratitude, encouragement in the gospel. And so uh, that's where we find ourselves today. Philippians chapter 1, verse number 27. Only let your conversation or the way that you live your life be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, whether I come and see you or else be absent. I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. As we take a look at the Christian life, the Christian life is, is, is a life like none other. Uh, the Christian life is something that we used to be one way, now we're a different way. We used to live our life in one manner, now we live it in a different manner. And anytime we make change in our life, change is difficult. Uh, whether you're changing your eating habits or changing the time that you get up in the morning or you're changing anything else, change is often met with resistance and it can be difficult from time to time. But here's the thing about the Christian life. The Christian life requires change for everyone. Uh, I've said before that the Christian life is come as you are. Uh, God accepts you with all of your shortcomings and all of your challenges and all the things that you struggle with. God accepts you exactly the way that you are, but you cannot stay as you are. The Christian life requires change. And so today we're taking a look at, uh, I've entitled today's message, Growing in Godly Maturity. As we mature in the Christian life, there needs to be growth in our lives. And I've said before, and it definitely bears repeating, that healthy things grow. If you plant a tree, you want to see growth in that tree. If you uh, uh, are trying to make progress in your life from a physical perspective, you want to see growth in that area. Uh, we want to see healthy things grow. You have children, you want to see your children grow. It's a bad thing if your children don't grow. The Christian life is the same in the fact that the Christian life is a life of continual growth. And so as we take a look at really what it means to grow in godly maturity, there's some areas in our life that should be markers for the growth that we want to see and the growth that we need to see in our lives. The Christian life really begins the day that you get saved, the day that you accept Christ as Savior. The Bible says that all of us are born into this world at odds with God. The Bible says we're all born enemies of God. Uh, the Bible says that when we're born into this world, we're not automatically born into the family of God. We're automatically born enemies of God, Romans chapter 5 says. Because of our sinful condition, because we've all broken God's law, and because we've all uh, disobeyed God's commandments, because of that, the Bible says that we're guilty of sin, and our sin has consequences that must be paid. And the consequences of our sin, the Bible says, is death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because we've sinned against God, we deserve to go to hell. We deserve to die and be separated from God forever. That's our punishment for our sin. But God loves you so much that he doesn't want you to die in your sin. He doesn't want you to uh, die and be separated from him. So God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for your sin. That Jesus came and lived a perfectly sinless life and gave his life on the cross as a substitutionary payment for our sin. See, Jesus owed God nothing. He didn't have to die. He didn't have to pay for anything. But he chose to die for us so that our sins could be forgiven. 
The Bible says that uh, Jesus died in our place so that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus died to pay for my sin, to pay for yours. And all those who would believe would have faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who would be willing to confess with their mouth and believe with their heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for our sins, that he's the only hope that we have for heaven, can be saved. And friend, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, you need to make sure that that's squared away before you leave here today. The Bible says no man shall enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And the Christian life only begins once you become a Christian. You don't become a Christian by attending a Christian church. You don't become a Christian by doing Christian-ish things. You don't become a Christian by uh, being baptized. You become a Christian by faith in Jesus Christ and repentance of your sin. There's never been a time in your life where you've been saved or born again. Let today be that day. That's the beginning of the Christian life. The Christian life also is a life of obedience and following God's commandments. Next uh, Sunday, following the 10 o'clock service, I'm really excited, we'll have a, a baptism service. We'll uh, have a regular church service over here. We'll head over to Alamona Beach Park following the 10 o'clock service, and we'll baptize right now three folks who've accepted Christ as Savior and wanna follow him in believer's baptism. That believer's baptism is a special day in the life of every Christian. If you've never been baptized, see me. We'll get you baptized next Sunday. I would be delighted uh, if you've been saved to, to baptize you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the way that it's commanded to in the Bible. And so we'll head over there with three people who says, I've been saved, I've accepted Christ as Savior, and I want to follow Jesus with my life. And this baptism is a picture of what Jesus has already done for them, and it's a symbol of them saying, I want to follow Jesus. Just as my wife and I, when we were married, she gave me a ring that I wear on my uh, ring finger of my left hand that shows everybody who sees it that I've made a commitment to her and she's made a commitment to me. Baptism by the same token is a symbol to everybody who sees you that day that you get baptized that I'm making a commitment to Jesus and he has made a commitment to me. And so if you've never been baptized, see me today. I'd be happy to give you all the details on baptism next Sunday. But salvation, the day that you get saved, the Bible says so many things happen that day that you got saved. If you've never been saved, you need to be saved. And when you do, here's what happens. The Bible says you pass from death into life. You're on your way to hell, separated from God. Now you're on your way to heaven. Eternal life is yours. The Bible says that you pass from darkness into light. The Bible says that you go from being an enemy of God to being a child of God. You went from being at odds with God to being adopted into his family. You went from being a child of wrath, a child of disobedience, a child of the devil, to now being a son or daughter of God because of what Jesus has done for you. All that happens in the split second that you accept Jesus Christ as your savior. The Bible says that the, the, when you are saved, that God has taken you and has set you apart. You were once part of the world and God's taken you out of the world and put you in a place for himself. We sometimes refer to that as sanctification. Sanctified means set apart for a specific purpose. And the day that you were saved, God took you out of your sin and took you out of this world and placed you into his family apart from the world and he positionally sanctified you but that's not where it ends. You see, we must grow in our sanctification. When we talk about growing in sanctification, God positionally took you out of the world and placed you in his family, but we now need to 
practically, day by day, be sanctified, be more like Christ, be less like the world and more like Jesus. That's a day-to-day process that we have to grow in. Second Peter chapter three, Peter closes out his second letter by saying, grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ that you were given the gift of salvation the day that you were saved, but you now need to grow in understanding that grace. It also says that we should grow in our knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We grow in knowing who Jesus is, and I'm telling you this, the more that you know Jesus, the more that you love Jesus. The more that you understand Jesus, the more you'll understand about yourself and how God expects you to live and how God expects you to walk in this life the more that you know Jesus. I would encourage you, if you don't have a good place in your Bible reading schedule right now, that you read through the Gospels and you look specifically for the way that Jesus interacts with other people. I read the Gospels through that one one time that way. And you'll find that some people, Jesus is very patient, very kind, very compassionate, very caring with the majority of the people. There's other people that Jesus is very short, very to the point, very harsh with. What makes the difference? Man, if you read through that, you'll find the difference. There's a way that Jesus treated people that were seeking for truth. There's a way that people, that Jesus treated people who were mocking him or making fun of him. There's a way that Jesus treated people that wanted to kill him and hated his guts. And there was another way that Jesus treated people who loved him and cared for him. I mean, if you just read the gospels, understanding who Jesus is, it'll kind of give you an indication as far as how you should live your life as well, but we need to grow in Christ's likeness. We need to grow in sanctification. Keep your finger here, but turn back to the Romans chapter eight if you would. I wanna show you something in Romans eight. Romans chapter eight, verse number 28 is a very common verse that many people quote either out of context or only half of the verse, which is a tragedy because it's such a good verse. Romans chapter eight, verse number 28 she says, we know that all things work together for good. And many people stop right there and say, well, God says all things work together for good. That's not exactly what he said. God says that all things work together for good to them that love God. Love in the Bible is always directly linked with obedience. Love is not an emotion or a feeling that we have. Love is always directly connected with obedience in the Bible, 100% of the time. And if you love God, you'll obey his commandments the way that he says Those that love God and those who are the called according to his purpose, that means this verse is only for Christians, those who have been saved. Those are the ones who have been called according to God's purpose. So this is not a verse that says everything works out for good for everybody. This is a verse that says everything works out for good to to those who are walking in love and obedience towards the Lord and those who are God's children. See, if you have someone who's walking in rebellion to God's word or someone who's not a Christian, this verse doesn't apply to them. But Romans 8.28 is also followed by Romans 8.29, which is another beautiful, beautiful verse that many times gets left out. It says this, whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. One of these days I'm gonna get around to preaching the book of Romans and you'll just need to buckle in because it'll probably take us five to six years, I would say. Uh, But it's so good. Because just a verse like verse number 29 is so big who he did foreknow. If you're a child of God, God knew before he ever created you that you would choose him, that you would be willing to repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. He knew that, so he predestinated. 
He set up a plan for you ahead of time before you were ever born. And what is that plan? That you would be conformed to the image of his son. The word conformed is the same word that's used in Romans uh, chapter 12, verse number two, where it says, be not conformed to this world. The word conformed means to be pressed into the mold of. There's a mold of what Jesus Christ looks like and you and I should be pressed into that mold to be conformed to the image of his son. So basically what this is saying is God has put up a plan in place for you to help you to be more like Jesus. That's God's plan for you. Before you were born, God had a plan in place that you would be made like Jesus. And verse number 28 tells us that sometimes those things are difficult and unhelpful and sometimes even hurtful, but all things work together for good to them that love God who are the called according to his purpose because who he did foreknow, he did also predestinate that you'll be conformed to the image of his son. But it doesn't stop there. Look at the end of the verse. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Here's the thing. God has a family. And God doesn't just have a small, tight-knit family. God has a massively large family. And if you're a child of God, you've been adopted into the family of God, not because you were born into it, because nobody's born into the family of God, except for the firstborn son. He's the only one that was born into the family of God. Everyone else is adopted kids. But here's the thing. Here's the beautiful part about this verse. I love, love, love this verse. Not only does God want you and I to be conformed to the image of Jesus, but Jesus Christ is the firstborn among many brethren. You know what that means? In our terms, Jesus Christ is our big brother. He's the example that we look up to of how it gets done. He's the one that is the firstborn among many brethren. Of all the the kids that God has, there's one big brother and his name's Jesus. And God wants us to be just like our big brother. And here's the awesome thing about that. I was reading this part of my devotions this past week in Psalm 23. The Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And the job of the shepherd is to look out for the sheep. And this particular uh, author said, many times we as sheep look at our problems that we have instead of looking towards our shepherd. I thought to myself, man, that is so true. But then as I read Romans 8, 29, I think to myself, Jesus Christ is our big brother. And so many times we look at our problems instead of looking at our big brother saying, hey, bro, can you help me out with this? That I now have a big brother who's gonna make sure that I don't get beat up for my lunch money on the way to school, right? (laughs) I got a big brother who's looking out for me in my best interest and I wanna be just like my big brother, Jesus, And at the same time, he's looking out for me, taking care of me because I'm his little brother. That's what Romans 8, 28 says, or Romans 8, 29. It's the beauty of actually digging into the word of God. What does it mean to be the firstborn among many brethren? I don't know. Most of the time people just say, all things work together for good and call it that. No, 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 read on, read on. God wants you to be like Jesus and he's given Jesus as an example for us to follow. And so growth and sanctification is really growth in Christ-likeness. It's growth in holiness. It's growth in righteousness. It's be continuing to grow to be more like Jesus every single day. God also wants us to grow in wisdom and maturity. Verse number 
Growth in the Christian life means that we're gonna grow in wisdom and maturity. Paul actually speaks of this earlier in Philippians chapter one here where he says, you know, I want you to abound in love, but I want you to do it more and more with wisdom and with discernment. Oftentimes we equate age with wisdom. We think to ourselves, well, wisdom's something that I'll get after a few decades of going through life and things like that. The Bible doesn't see it that way. The Bible says that wisdom is the application of knowledge. I know what I should do and I'm actually doing it. That's wisdom. Both of my grandfathers lived well into their 80s. Both of my grandfathers were alcoholics, womanizers, abusers, terrible excuses for human beings. I sat with my grandfathers and I heard a lot of stories. I can't tell you that I ever sat with my grandfathers and ever heard a word of wisdom, ever. Oh, but these are older guys who've gone through life. These guys have seen a lot. Sure they have. They've seen a lot of terrible stuff. They've done a lot of terrible stuff and they didn't learn their lesson. These are not examples of wisdom. This is examples of foolishness. So many times we look and they go, oh, well, they're, they're older than me. They must be wiser. Please do not equate old with wise. I've met guys in their teens that are ridiculously wise. I've met ladies in their 20s that are very, very wise. Why? Because they have tuned their heart to the word of God. That they're not marching along to the beat of the drum of the world. They've actually found a greater, higher source of wisdom in the word of God. I think if (coughs) Solomon... Solomon's the wisest person to ever walk the planet apart from Jesus. And we've always had to give a caveat that Solomon's the wisest man apart from Jesus because when you are God in the flesh, you're kind of in your own category of of wisdom, you know? Uh, You kind of get the asterisk uh, beside your name. Uh, So uh, Solomon, wisest guy ever other than Jesus Christ. And Solomon, before he dies, he had sons. And he wanted to write a, a book to his boys basically pouring out everything that he knew about life. Now, I think if Solomon was a guy living in 2020, he would probably have a side hustle as a professional life coach. He would be an executive coach that you would spend $1,000, $1,500 an hour just to sit down with a guy and, and breathe in the same air that this guy breathes in. But you know what God did for us in God's wisdom? God recorded it as part of his word. Solomon was moved by the Holy Spirit as he wrote this letter to his boys and didn't just throw out a bunch of nonsense that a dad would want his boys to know. He poured out God's word to us so that we have a book chock full of wisdom. And here's what he said in Proverbs chapter two, verse one. My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commands, commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear into wisdom and apply thine heart unto understanding. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest knowledge and understanding as silver and searchest for her as hid treasures, then thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord. Then shalt thou find the knowledge of God. You gotta look for wisdom. Solomon is saying to his boys, boys, be students of wisdom. Look for it, love it. Seek for it like hidden treasure. I was encouraging our uh, single adults a few weeks ago. We talked about Christian dating on a Friday night in our Singles Connect group. And I told them, do this, read the book of Proverbs, 
but read it from the perspective of dating advice. Well, what does the book of Proverbs say about dating? Explicitly, the book of Proverbs says nothing whatsoever about dating. Implicitly, the book of Proverbs is the dating manual for life. So I said, read through the book of Proverbs and look explicitly for dating advice. And I would say, if you're a parent, read through the book of Proverbs and read it as explicitly looking for parenting advice, marriage advice, single adult living life advice. And read, mine the depths of God's word for wisdom. And wisdom always comes from the word of God. That's why as a pastor, I encourage you, be in the Bible every single day without fail because you need the wisdom that comes from God's word Seek wisdom, desire it, like you're looking for hidden treasure. One of our family favorites uh, years ago, movies was National Treasure with Nicolas Cage. I think anything with Nicolas Cage is awesome automatically, but uh, that's beside the point. But National Treasure was a good, clean, fun movie about finding the Declaration of Independence and all these clues that they took. And you know, they would break into buildings and find stuff and do all these switcheroos and tricks and stuff like that, looking for the national treasure of the Declaration of Independence and things like that. And these were people who were on a treasure hunt, right? Solomon's saying, I want you to look for God's wisdom like it's a treasure hunt, like hidden treasure. Like everywhere you go, you're looking for it. Could it be here? Can I find it here? Look at life events in the lens of wisdom. Is this wise? Is this unwise? Is there wisdom to be found here? Is there foolishness to be found here? One time I read through the book of Proverbs and had four highlighters. And I would go through and I would highlight passages that spoke to the wise, the fool, the simple, the scorner. And then at the end of it, I have four different colors and I look at and see the contrast and comparisons that was made there. You know what I was trying to do? I was trying to get some wisdom. And let me just tell you this, I don't have it all yet, but I want it. I wanna continue to seek for it. I wanna continue to search for it because we have to grow in godly wisdom and maturity. For me, I continue to read books. I don't enjoy reading them, but I know that I need to read and so I'm constantly reading books that will help me to be a better Christian, to be a better man, to be a better husband, to be a better father, to be a better pastor, to be a more use to Christ. Because I wanna continually grow in my knowledge of the Lord and how I can be useful to him. When we take a look at growth, growth doesn't happen by accident again. One of the primary ways that God grows Christians is through discipleship. Discipleship is God's plan for Christian growth. Look at who we call it. We make a big deal about discipleship here. It's kind of the bread and butter of what we do. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave us a final commandment. We sometimes refer to it as the Great Commission. He says, I want you to go into all the world. I want you to win people to Jesus Christ, myself. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to teach them everything that I've said. So we boil down the Great Commission to go, win, baptize, teach. That's the mission of our church. That's what we do. Any Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, the mission of the church is the Great Commission, go, win, baptize, teach. So the teach aspect of that is to teach people everything that Jesus said. We refer to that as discipleship. Discipleship is the process of helping someone become a committed follower of Jesus. 
And God's given us a plan for that. And the plan is discipleship. It's sitting down with another Christian and going through this process with them. I got saved when I was a nine-year-old boy and I never really walked with Jesus until I was an adult. I didn't even know what that meant to walk with Jesus because I grew up in a church that taught a lot of good Bible stories, but as far as how to live your life on a day-to-day basis as a changed child of God, I didn't really get that. Angela got saved at a Baptist revival when she was a teenager, went back to a church that did not preach the gospel, did not preach the Bible. And so she heard a lot of stories about morality and being good and being kind, but didn't really learn what it meant to walk with Jesus either. So we get married, we're two baby infant Christians who don't really know anything about anything. Started attending church because it was the only thing we knew how to do. And there was a assistant pastor and his wife, Pat and Jane Smith, who took Angela and I under their wings and just loved us and encouraged us and helped us. We'd get together, we'd talk about the Bible, they'd have us in their home, we'd talk about the Bible, we'd talk about things that were going on in our life, they'd encourage us like, hey, I probably wouldn't do that if I were you because that's not a wise thing to do. Hey, probably wouldn't act that way because Christians don't act that way. Hey, you're, you're struggling in parenting, here's some things that we would encourage you to do. And we didn't know it at the time, we just thought they were just being really nice to us, but you know what they were doing? They were discipling us. They were teaching us, hey, committed followers of Jesus don't live that way. They're different, they're distinct. And I'm telling you this, two decades later, I am where I am today because two people took time to invest their life into ours. I'd never seen that before, but I thought to myself, I wish everybody had somebody to like mentor through this process, to walk through this process. And what I thought was a great way that they thought to help me and Angela grow as Christians, I later realized that that wasn't their idea, it was God's idea. Discipleship is God's plan. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus knew that he wouldn't be around forever, so you know what he did? He picked out 12 guys to follow him. And he says, guys, I want you to follow me everywhere I go for the next three years, watch everything that I do, and here's how you'll do it after I'm gone. Hey guys, here's how you get a group of people together and share truth. Here's how you treat people that disagree with you. Here's how you treat people from a different religious background. Here's what you do when people have needs. They're hungry, they maybe are are sick. Here's how you meet those needs. When I leave, here's how you'll handle things in the church. What's the church? Oh, you'll figure that out later. It's coming. But here's how you handle things. And Jesus did such an incredible job. For 36 months or so, this leadership pipeline that he had was so successful that the three years that he spent with these guys changed the next 2,000 years. Just taking 12 guys and spending time with them day by day saying, do this, don't do that. And that model that we have is what we refer to as discipleship. And that's why at Huikala, this is such a big deal for us because this is the way that we learn and grow Christians. You see, we learn by walking together with others. It's one thing to read it, it's another thing to see it. It's one thing to, to be able to understand in your mind what it must have been like to be like a Christian in the uh, you know, biblical times and understand like, hey, this is how they handle things. But it's a different thing altogether to be able to say, oh, I see. That's how you handle that situation at work because you're a Christian. Oh, I see. That's why what you did in marriage because you're a Christian. Oh, got it. That's why you handle that situation differently with your kids because you're Christian. Got it. It's another thing to see it in action. 
It's one thing for me when I'm working on my car to be able to say, look at a service manual and the exploded diagram to figure out what I'm supposed to do with my brakes. And it's just like, ah, I kind of get that, I kind of don't. But now, man, pull out my phone and watch a YouTube video. Like, oh, there we go. You know why? Because we learn by watching. 20 years ago, people would have gotten a recipe and some book that they bought in a bookstore somewhere on how to bake bread. Now you know what you do. You watch a YouTube video and you teach you how to make bread. That's why they have a food network where the whole thing is to sit and watch people cook food because we learn by watching. You take any trade, whether it be an electrician or a plumber or a cook, you partner them up with another person and say, hey, here's how we do things. Here's how we're doing things this way. We don't do it this way. We do it that way instead. Here's some things we do for safety. Here's some other things we do for that. I don't know about you guys, but I'm so frustrated so many times I'm watching a YouTube video. Okay, I need to figure out how to fix the suspension on my car, you know? And some guy comes on. Hey, I'm Rick. Thanks for checking out my YouTube channel today. And you fast forward a little bit. Don't forget to like and subscribe over here. So I can fast forward a little bit. I went to AutoZone. I got 10% off of AutoZone. If you fast forward a little bit further, it's like, oh, okay, here's the part that I want. Fast forward I through the whole video to get the 10 seconds that I want. And you know what's funny? Sometimes we in the Christian life, we want to do the same thing. Yeah, I don't have time for the discipleship thing. I don't have time to stop by and pick up a pie. I don't have time to join a small group. Just show me how to grow as a Christian. I don't have time to, 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 to figure out some Zoom or whatever. I don't have time to be in a small group. I got other stuff going on. Just show me how to be a really good Christian really quick. I don't have 14 weeks to go through a discipleship program. I don't have a lot of time to spend. Just show me how to be a really quick, good Christian. And the answer is you can't do that. You just can't. For, for me, I've been walking with Jesus for over two decades. Angela and I, for 20 plus years of our marriage, I've gone to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, three times a week for 20 plus years. If you think of three times a week for a year, that's about 150 times a year that Angela and I sat down on purpose with our Bible open, ready to receive teaching from the Word of God. Over 20 years, that's 3,000 times that Angela and I sat down with our Bibles open, hearts ready to hear from God's word to apply that to our lives. Now, you want to count on top of that the hundreds of times we opened our Bible on our own throughout the year to receive from God's word for two decades. Then you begin to see, oh, well, that makes sense. It's a time thing. It's an investment thing. And growth in the Christian life can't be measured in days and weeks. It's measured in years and decades. So this is one of those things that we're not trying out for a little bit to see how it works. We're, we're going the distance with this. And Paul, as he writes to the church of Philippi, he says, I want you to grow. I want you to do this together. And I want you to find examples of people that are doing it well and follow their example Paul says in Philippians chapter three uh, that we should find people that are doing well, mark them, and use them as an example. Keep your finger here in Philippians. We're coming back. We'll turn, if you would, back to Galatians chapter 10. I'm sorry, uh, 1 Corinthians 10. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul's writing a letter to the most carnal church in all of biblical history. The most sinful, terrible excuse for a church you can imagine was the church at Corinth. They were struggling with sexual immorality that was taking place in the church itself. Drunkenness, division, 
arguments, Christians suing other Christians. I mean, it was bad. And Paul just kind of boils it down for him. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 31. It says, look guys, whether you eat or you drink, whatsoever you do to all to the glory of God. I think most of us are probably maybe familiar with that verse. But he goes on in verse number 32, he says, give none offense. That word none offense doesn't mean don't, don't offend anyone. It means don't cause anybody else to sin by the way that you're living your life. Don't live your life in such a way that cause other people to sin, neither the Jews nor the Gentiles nor the church of God. He says in verse 33, even as I please all men in my own things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. I don't live my life for me. I'm living my life so that other people can come to Jesus. And here's what he says. It's interesting when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he didn't write in chapters and verses. He just wrote a letter. And so there's a break at the end of this saying, oh, that's the end of the chapter, but it's not the end of the thought because verse number one, he says, be followers of me even as I am also of Christ. Hey, I don't live my life for my own glory. I live it for God's glory. I don't live it for what I can get from it, for what I want from it. I live it for other people so that other people can come to Christ. And I want you to follow my example as I follow Jesus. This is the way I want you to live. And so he says this, 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Be followers of me. That word followers could also be uh, used interchangeably with the English word imitators. What you see me do, I want you to do that as I imitate Christ. So throughout the Bible, the Bible gives us examples of pointing out people that are doing it well and following their example. And Pat and Jane Smith said to Angela and I two decades ago, hey guys, we're walking through this with Jesus. He's taught us some things. We've gleaned a lot of wisdom from his word. And I want you to follow our example as we follow Christ. That's the idea behind discipleship. Find people that you can follow their example. And Paul says, hey, follow my example as I follow after Christ. Go back to Philippians chapter one, if you would, verse number 27. <laughs> Paul says, only let your conversation, the way that you live your life be as it becomes the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. Paul says, whether I come see you or whether I don't, I wanna hear how you're doing. And here we're talking about when it comes to Christian growth and the Christian life, we're talking about accountability and accountability is for everyone. Paul says, I'd like to check in with you and see how you're doing. Accountability is one of those things where some might think, well, I only need accountability if I've got a problem. I only need accountability if I'm not doing something right. I don't really need accountability. I'm beyond that. Accountability is for everybody. And anyone who says that they don't need accountability is not showing their maturity. They're actually showing their foolishness because all of us need to be accountable. And the idea of accountability is this. There's somebody looking out for my well-being, not somebody looking over my shoulder, waiting for me to make a mistake or waiting for me to slip up or waiting to point out or looking for, for to say, I told you so. This is somebody who's saying, hey, is everything okay? Hey, I'm worried about you. Is everything all right? And everybody needs that. As a pastor, I'm here to keep you accountable. I'm here to help you find your greatest spiritual fruitfulness in your life and continue to grow in that fruitfulness. And it's not my job to be involved in your life, to be in your business. It's my job to help you to find spiritual fruitfulness. 
I was a single Navy guy. I, again, grew up in church, but had gotten, become disillusioned with church. And I began attending a church in Pensacola that was um, not too far from the apartment that I was living in. And I would go probably every three weeks or so just to make myself feel better. I'd always go up and there was a, a side entrance that you could walk in where you didn't have to see anybody. And I would go up the side entrance. There's a side stairs up to the balcony. I would sit in a section of the balcony where nobody bothered me. <laughs> nobody talked to me. Nobody knew my name. After the service was over, they said, hey, let's, let's stand for a dismissing order prayer. Boom, I was down the stairs out in the parking lot before they ever dismissed. Golden. Here's the thing. I never knew anybody. If you asked me, Pastor, I will give you $1 million if you can name the name of the pastor of that church. I could not tell you, not for a million bucks. Joe Smith, I guess, you know, best guess I got. No idea, you know why? Because I wasn't plugged in there and I, wasn't, had, I didn't have any remote sense of accountability to anybody there. Probably every other time I would go, they would have a, a fellowship time that was nothing like ours. It was more of like a, hey, say howdy to some folks around you and the piano would play like about two measures and then you turn back around and, and go back to what you're doing. So you would walk around and you go, hey, 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 done, you know? Never exchange conversation, get to know anybody's name, just sit, get what you want, split. And that, that became my MO. I went to church there for probably about a year and again, mind you, about every three weeks. I did the exact same thing. I never knew anybody's name. Nobody ever knew my name. Never spoke with the pastor, didn't know anybody. And here's the thing, the time that I walked out of that church for the very last time, nobody knew, nobody cared, and nobody could have found me if they wanted to. Like, nobody knew my name, nobody knew my number, where I worked. I could have fallen over dead. Nobody would have known the difference. And here's the worst part. I was okay with that. Because I thought to myself, spirituality is a very personal thing. I don't need anybody's help. I don't need anybody in my business. I don't need anybody's oversight. I'm a big boy. I'm a grown up. I can take care of myself. Foolish. God has given us the church to hold us accountable. As your pastor, you might not know this, but as your pastor, I will stand before God one day and give an account for the way that I led this church. And if I do it flippantly where people come and go and I don't care about their spiritual well-being, I don't care whether they're here, whether they're not here, they're just able to, to come and go as they please and get what they want, I'll answer to God before that. And I take that very, very seriously. So you may have at some point been on the receiving end of a text message, an email, or a postcard who sounds something like this. Hey, miss you in church on Sunday. Hope everything's well. Let me know if there's anything I can do to help. And that isn't me getting in your business. That's not me trying to, to run your life. That's me letting you know, hey, just trying to keep you accountable because I know that we're, we have a tendency to drift sometimes if somebody's not looking out for us. Our small groups are another layer of accountability where we see the same people week after week after week. And if we miss a couple of weeks, there should be people in our group that says, hey, I didn't see you on Wednesday. Is everything cool? I didn't see you in church on Sunday. Is everything all right? And when I say things like that, please understand, don't take it personally like I'm trying to get in your business or anything like that. Or, uh, you know, look, we don't get, uh, you know, bonus points if we break a certain number in attendance on a Sunday and we needed you to break that attendance or anything like that. I, I ask because I care. You know, I ask you how your family's doing, how your marriage is doing, not because I'm trying to get in your business, because I care, I wanna keep you accountable. And look, here's the thing, if I, the person who is the pastor of the church that you attend is not asking you about your spiritual well-being and your spiritual health. Let me just tell you, nobody else is, that's for sure. So we need to view accountability as a gift from God. 
not something to, to shirk or to shove off. No, it's a gift that I have people that are looking out for me. It's a gift that I ask people how my walk with the Lord is. It's a gift that I have men ask me how they can pray for me this week. It's a gift for me when people say, hey, pastor, is everything okay with you? I just wanted to check. That's a gift. I'm not like, why do you ask? Mind your own business. Oh, man, thank you for asking. So accountability is one of those things that everybody needs. The book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, wisest man ever, says in Ecclesiastes 4.9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his, his fellow. But woe unto him who's alone when he falleth because he hath not, hath not another to help him up. My wife and kids were uh, off island one weekend and I was at home alone by myself. And um, it was about midnight I, I flip channels until I can fall asleep when I'm at home by myself because I'm terrible at being home alone. Uh, I was a terrible bachelor too. My wife can attest to that. Uh, but I was watching TV and I heard something that sounded like footsteps outside. And I was like, ooh, this is exciting. Like, I live for stuff like this. I have a, a baseball bat that's about this long uh, called the Brooklyn Basher. It's for hitting very, very small baseballs. Um, I have this. It's heavily weighted on one end of the other. Uh, and so I hear something go bump in the night. Man, I grab my Brooklyn Basher. I got a big, huge flashlight. Uh, and with both of those things, somebody's gonna get their head taken off. Uh, and so I hear it out there. I jump into action. I spring. I grab my Brooklyn Basher. I grab my, my, my mag light. And I'm just getting ready to put my hand on the door. And Angela and I, we go through this often uh, because there's often people that are outside up to no good. And so here's what we always do. I say, sweetheart, call 911. I'm gonna go find out what's up. And so we, she calls, uh, I go find out what's up. I put my hand on the door and I realize, Angela's not, come, not home and she's not coming home for another two days. And if I open this door and there's three guys who hit my head before I hit theirs, I'm gonna lay on the concrete and bleed out before anybody ever finds me. Nobody's calling 911, nobody's looking for me. She won't be home for two days and she'll find me a bloody mess laying there on the concrete. This is not good. If I walk out there, there's nobody that has my back. I don't know if there's anything out there or not. What happened? The wind had blown over one of those A-frame signs. It fell over and it sounded like somebody walking when it fell because it fell and bounced twice. I find that out later when I'm peering out the window like a scaredy cat, right? But I think to myself, I don't have anybody coming for me. I got no backup. I'm totally alone on this. And unfortunately, many people walk through the Christian life like that. You get taken out and you're bleeding out. And there's nobody there to save you. Nobody there to check up on you. Nobody there to make sure that you're on the right path. So we need accountability. Let me just tell you as your pastor, if you're not gonna be here next Sunday, do me a favor, send me a text message. That'll help me. And one of the things too, by being a member of who we call a Baptist church, you have to choose to be a member. You're not a member because you attend here automatically. Choosing to be a member of who we call a Baptist church means you've been saved, you've been baptized, and you're committed to living out the Christian life here with this community. Our core values are on the front door of our church, love, pray, give, serve, and invest. By being a church member, you're saying, I commit to living those things. Now, plenty of people attend here. There's people who attend here for one service and never come back. There's people who come for a couple of weeks and then go find another place somewhere else, and that's fine. People come and go all the time. Every person that comes to who we call, I try to send a postcard to, I send them a text message, I shoot them an email, uh, let them know that I'm thinking of them, I'm praying for them. If they don't come back, I say, hey, we miss you on Sunday. Hope things are well. Let me know if there's anything I can do to, to be a help or a blessing. And if they never come back, I just say, hey, uh, the Lord will take care of that. And he always does. 
But if you tell me that this is the place that you wanna be, that you're fully locked and loaded, committed to this place, and by being a member of this church, you're submitting to my leadership, and you're saying, you are my pastor, and I trust your spiritual leadership. That's a, that's a thing that I take very, very seriously. So if you casually attend, and you're kind of hit and miss in your attendance, and you don't show up for a week, I'm gonna reach out and say, hey, Mission Sunday, I hope everything's well. You missed two weeks. I'm probably gonna reach out a second time. Third week in a row, I'm gonna say, you don't respond to me, then, then obviously, you know, you don't want accountability in your life, and that's okay. But if you're a member of who we call a Baptist church and you miss one service, you're gonna get a phone call or text message from me immediately on Sunday. Missed you this morning, is everything okay? How can I help? You miss two weeks in a row, you're gonna have me banging on the front door of your house saying, open up, come out, come out wherever you are. And I don't go away as easy as the Jehovah's Witnesses do. When Jehovah's Witnesses, you just like, act like you didn't hear them? No. Bang, 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 bang. <laughs> it's funny, sometimes people go, I live in a secured building. Bro, you just tell people you're a pastor and you're here to help, they'll let you go anywhere you wanna go, you know? <laughs> your doorman ain't gonna stop me. But look, anybody who's walked with Jesus any length of time says, I need that in my life. If I'm slipping, I want somebody to call me back. If I'm wandering away from the fold, I want somebody to get that shepherd's crook and put it around my neck and yank me back where I need to be. And Paul's saying, whether I come see you or I'm absent, I wanna hear that you're doing okay, that you're doing what you need to do because that's what Christian maturity looks like. But here's the thing, with all the discipleship, with all the accountability, with all the solid godly people that you have in your life, at some point we must take personal ownership for our own spiritual growth. Paul knew one day that he wasn't gonna be around to check on the church at Philippi and he told them, hey, look, even if I'm not there, I want you to be doing the right thing. Even if I'm not checking up on you, even if I'm not following up on you, I wanna know that you're doing what you need to be doing. Who we call it, I don't know where you will be in 10 years from now, but I hope that you'll be walking with Jesus. We celebrated seven years in October and I had all the people stand who were here on our first Sunday. At this point in our church, that's probably about 10 people that were here our very first Sunday in seven years. That's how much turnover we've had in seven years. Imagine 10 years from now. I don't know where you'll be 10 years from now, but I hope if it's a Sunday morning, you'll be gathered together with God's people in your church worshiping Jesus. That's what I want for you. But that doesn't happen by accident. That requires us personally owning our spiritual well-being. I've heard people before blame their pastor because they didn't grow spiritually. I think it's a terrible excuse. I've heard people before say, well, I didn't really grow at that church because the pastor didn't preach well or the pastor didn't care about me or there wasn't any people that liked me there and stuff like that. Hey, look, I realize that you might have had suboptimal environmental factors for growth, but at the end of the day, you gotta own it. Because we are personally responsible for our own health and well-being. Look, I can't text you every morning and ask you if you read your Bible or not. I remember back when I was new at this whole like spiritual leadership thing. Uh, we were serving on staff at a church in California. There was a group of guys I was really trying to encourage and help them to be godly men and stuff like that. And I would send them text messages every afternoon asking if they'd read their Bible. And I did that for about two weeks and I thought to myself, I'm not building Christian men. 
I've created Christian daycare. <laughs> like, hey, Billy, I hope you read your Bible today. If you haven't, you should read it this afternoon before you go to bed. Next day, did you read your Bible? No. Okay, try to do it before. You... Look, that's not, that's not maturity. That's holding somebody's hand. At some point, you gotta say, hey, I'm a grown man. I'm a grown woman. I wanna be a woman of God. I wanna be a man of God. And I've got to take responsibility for this. If nobody asks me if I read my Bible, then I need to read my Bible because it's the right thing. If I'm not walking in the Spirit, I don't need somebody to ask me if I'm walking in the Spirit. I need to own up and say, I'm just being a carnal, ungodly excuse for a Christian today. I need to get my act together. That's what maturity looks like. And sometimes we need somebody to hold our hand and to, to get us through a rough patch. I get that. Sometimes we need accountability, uh, and I get that. Everybody needs accountability. But at some point, you've got to stand on your own two feet and say, hey, I'm going to do this because this is a priority for me. Deuteronomy 4, 29, God says this, but thence, from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him. They seek with all thy heart, with all thy soul. You're not going to, unintentionally fall into Christian growth. You gotta seek it. You're not just gonna stumble upon God every day. You're gonna have to go looking for him. And when you look for him, you're gonna find him really easily. But part of Christian maturity is also taking what we've been given and investing it in others. I gotta take what I've learned and now's my opportunity to pass it on to somebody else. I remember early on in my Christian walk, this is to highlight my immaturity. There are messages that I would hear preached and God's word just completely and totally destroyed me. Like I would hear the word of God preached and I would read it on the page and I would just be smitten by the power of the word of God and think, oh, I have got to change. I can't live this way any longer. And then the next Sunday I would hear a message just like, eh, didn't really apply. It really worked for me. It's kind of a bummer. Like, maybe next week we'll be better. Maybe the next week the message didn't directly apply to me. I think, ah, bummer. Didn't really apply to me. And then I realized I had the totally wrong perspective on that. I need to be a student of God's word. I need to be a scholar of God's word that I'm soaking up so much information that I can pass on to other people. That I can use this to help another person. Hey, maybe I wasn't struggling with that issue, but I can help somebody that is. Hey, maybe I don't struggle with pornography. I don't, but I've read a dozen books on it because I want to help guys and ladies that are struggling with pornography. I don't struggle so much with depression, but I want to know about it, and so I read books about depression from a Christian perspective and how I can help other people with that because I want to take what God is teaching me and what I'm learning and pass those on to other people so I can be more useful to the cause of Christ. So again, I want to take what I've got. I want to pay it forward. I want to invest it in the lives of others. Hey, look, some of you folks in our church that have been married for any length of time, we've got about a dozen couples in our church that have been married for less than five years. It'd be a good thing to grill some burgers and have them over the house to talk about life and marriage and raising kids and stuff like that. That would be a good thing. That's what I'm talking about, taking what you've learned and investing in the lives of others. There's people in our church that have been walking with Jesus for less than 90 days. It'd be a good thing to grab lunch or coffee with them and ask them how their Christian growth is going, what their growth plan for life looks like. That'd be a good thing to take what you've learned and pay it forward. 
our discipleship program here at Huey College, a 14-week discipleship program called Continue. We're actually kicking it off on January 13th this year. I don't know if it'll be uh, online or in person or how we're gonna do it, but here's the thing. Every Christian should go through some form of discipleship, everybody. Here's the awesome thing that happened this past year. We, we launched discipleship in the midst of a global pandemic. I wanna say it was uh, April or uh, May of this year we, we kicked off our discipleship program. We had 14 people sign up for discipleship and we had 14 people that were taking them through that discipleship program. This has never happened in the history of our church. We had 14 people sign up and we had 14 people complete their discipleship. The majority of people did it online. Uh, some people met in person and did uh, a mixture of online and in person. I don't know what's gonna happen in January. We're just gonna automatically assume that it's gonna be online, but here's the thing you can do. Commit to discipleship. And again, it's one of those things that if you've gone through discipleship now, it's your opportunity to teach somebody else. If you've never gone through, it's your opportunity to learn. You might say, well, I've been walking with Jesus for you know, decades. I don't need discipleship. Every Christian needs discipleship. There's a couple that I discipled um, several years ago. They've been saved for longer than I've been alive. But I had the opportunity to disciple them. Man, they learned and gleaned so much and have taken what they've learned and used it to help dozens and dozens of people. And so if you might say, well, you know, I don't really need that. Maybe you can go through it to see how we do it here so that you can then do that for somebody else. But here's the thing you can do, sign up for discipleship. We'll be talking about this over the next eight weeks before we have the official kickoff next year. And lest you uh, be deceived, uh, January 13th is about eight weeks away. Uh, it's hard to believe, but it is. But here's the thing. Sign up for discipleship. You can do that through our church website, through the Who We Call app. Sign up for discipleship. We'll partner you up with another Christian. Go through this walk through a 14-week process together of learning what it means to be a committed follower of Christ. And here's the thing. Discipleship is something that you take and you, what you've learned and pass it on to somebody else. Here's the thing. If you are a husband, discipleship should take place in your home with your wife. If you have children, discipleship should take place with your children. For me, I teach my kids every single day what it means to be a committed follower of Christ. But when Vanderlei began to be about 14, 15 years old, I took another godly man in our church and I said, would you mind taking my son through discipleship? And Vanderlei sat down with another godly man in our church that I love and respect and he took him through the discipleship program because I wanted him to see, hey, this is not just what your dad's saying, this is what solid Christian godly men go through. This is how they live life. And so, again, discipleship is so huge for us because it's just walking with Jesus with another person. And every Christian needs to go through something like that. Final thought this morning is this. We remain committed by determining to stand firm. Take a look at verse 27 again. Well, let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, whether I come and see you or else be absent. I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That, frame, that word phrase, stand fast. Stand fast is a military term that was used that one would hold a line in face of great opposition. When he says stand fast, he's not meaning like just hang out. He's talking about this. You will have to make a decision that you're gonna stand through this through thick and thin, good times and bad, because the enemy is coming for you and wants you to back down wants you to wave the white flag, wants you to give up a little bit of space, but you need to stand fast, hold that line, don't give up an inch. That's what it means to stand fast. And we remain committed by determining, I'm gonna stick through this through thick and thin. 
Angela and I made a decision before we got married that we were marrying each other for life, regardless of what happened, what was coming our way. We were in this for the long haul. We were gonna die married to one another. That's a commitment that we made. By the same token, when we started walking with Jesus, we made a decision. If we're gonna do this whole Christian life thing, we're either gonna be all in or we're gonna be all out. That we're either gonna do this the right way or we're just not gonna do it. And we made a decision, no, we're gonna do it. And we're not gonna do it for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. We're gonna do this for the rest of our lives. We're committed to this. And that was a decision we made two decades ago that has brought forth so much good fruit. And I'm just gonna be honest with you. There have been times where we have been tempted to quit. There are times where Angela and I have had the discussion, you know, life would probably be a lot easier if we weren't Christians, if we weren't held to this standard that God has set for us. Nobody else has to follow these rules, but we do. Life is so hard on us because of these restrictions that are in place for us. Maybe it would be easier if we weren't Christians. Maybe we wouldn't go through as much struggle and heartache and difficulty if we weren't Christians. And there have been times where we have said to ourselves, maybe this is too hard. Hmm. Let me help you with something. Every single time those thoughts have come to us or to you, know this, that is 100% enemy opposition because all of that is lies, all of it. The Bible says the devil's the father of lies. The devil wants to tell you, it'd be easier if you weren't a Christian. Really? How would life be so much easier if I weren't a Christian? If I didn't have God as my father, Christ as my brother, if I didn't have a loving church family, if I didn't have a pastor that prayed for me, if I didn't know that all things work together for good to them that love God, that if I didn't know where I was going when I died, that I thought I was in danger of God's wrath and punishment, how would life be so much better? Please pray tell. And the answer is it wouldn't. Oh, life would be so much easier if you didn't have all these restrictions and guidelines, rules you gotta follow. Really? That's like saying our world would be so much better if there were no laws and it was complete and total anarchy and we could just do whatever we wanted whenever we wanted. It doesn't work that way. God gives us rules and guidelines because he wants to mass produce joy in us. His commandments, the Bible says, are not grievous. God's not trying to suck away your joy, suck away your fun. God's trying to increase your joy. It's a really, really good thing. And so just know when those thoughts of quitting on your faith, quitting on God come, no, that's enemy opposition. You need to say, nope, I've already determined I'm gonna hold the line. I'm gonna be here. I don't know where I'll be 25 years from now, but I can tell you this, if it's a Sunday morning, I'm gonna be gathered together with God's people worshiping my creator and savior. That's where I'll be a guarantee. I don't know anything else, but I know that much is true. Could I look you up five years from now, 10 years from now, and still see you following Jesus? I hope so. Received a text message from longtime friend last weekend. Sends me a text, he says, hey, just wanna let you know I was thinking of you and praying for you and who we call it. Hope you have a great day tomorrow. This was last Saturday. <laughs> and I look, and I recognize the area code is California, but I, don't, I have no clues to who this person is. Isn't that awkward? Because I say, thanks for praying. I really appreciate that. That means so much. I don't seem to have your number in my phone. Could you tell me who this is? <laughs> Felt awkward, but texted back and told me his name. And this was... When Angela and I moved to California 
sight unseen, didn't know a single soul. We just knew we wanted to serve Jesus with our lives. We moved out there to go to Bible college. This is one of the first five couples that we met when we moved to California. And all this time later, probably, man, this would be 18 years later, he said, hey, we moved to Tennessee to be closer to our daughter, but we found a good church there. We are still serving Jesus and still love Lancaster Baptist and still in contact with our pastor, but uh, God's been really good to us. And I told him this, thanks for being faithful to Jesus. And he and his wife have been generous over the years and have given to Hui Kala and, and helped us uh, get Hui Kala started. Just godly, generous, kind people. And I said, thanks for being faithful to Jesus because that same class that we were a part of, if there were 20 couples in that group, there's probably five or less that are still walking with Jesus. Angela from time to time will tell me, hey, I saw on Facebook that so-and-so, they got divorced and he found some girl on the internet that he moved in with. Oh. And I remember going out on outreach to that guy on Saturday mornings, sharing my faith with people. He like left his wife and kids. That's hurtful. Oh yeah, this couple that, you know, we had in our home that I prayed with their kids. Pictures of them on the internet getting completely and totally drunk and making fun of it on the internet. Boy, that's hurtful to hear. But then there's folks who just say, hey, no, here's the line. I'm not giving up an inch. I'm gonna cross the line. This is where we stand. It's a determination to stand fast. And I don't know if you've ever had a time where you've committed to walking with Jesus for the rest of your life, but maybe you should make that commitment today. That, hey, hey, doesn't matter what comes my way. If I get sick, if I lose my job, I'm still gonna be faithful to Jesus. Oftentimes I think it's way too easy for people to quit on Jesus, and I don't understand that. The slightest bit of difficulty comes in their life, it's just like, oh, I'm done. That's it. The, the funniest is, oh, my kids started soccer, so we, we will be out of church for the next three months. Oh, okay. And let me just tell you this, spoiler alert, they generally don't come back after three months. I've never seen somebody take a 90-day break from Jesus and then come back refueled, fired up, ready to hit it again. I generally find they're like, ah, that wasn't really that big of a deal for us to begin with. And so we just kind of found something else to do with our time. Make a decision that I'm not gonna quit. I'm not gonna give up. I'm gonna hold the line forever. We have to be united in our mission and our motivation. Again, our mission is the Great Commission, go, win, baptize, teach. Our motivation should be the glory of God. Just like Paul says, I don't live for myself. I live so that other people can know Jesus. That should be our motivation. That should be what fires us up. I decided to stand firm. I'm gonna build my life around the gospel because the gospel changes people's lives. I'm gonna build my life with other people who are going the same direction that I am, that are like-minded, that love Jesus, that wanna see God glorified, Jesus magnified in their life. That's who I'm gonna build my life with. Those are the people that'll be closest to me. That's where I'm going with this. You see, he says in here, in one mind, one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The word spirit's not capitalized here because it's not necessarily talking about the spirit of God, but more or less the human spirit the things that fire us up, the things that get us excited, one mind, this is where the direction that we're going. So he speaks of one mind and one spirit. He's talking about the mission that we have, the motivation, what gets us fired up. What's our passion, what drives us? And Paul says, here's what needs to drive us, the gospel. 
striving together for the faith of the gospel. But you see, we're also united in our commitment to the faith. This morning you're seated in a room full of people not that have it all together, not that have all the answers for life. You're not seated in a room full of people who have everything perfectly in order and all their, their, their ducks in a row. You're not sitting in a room full of people who are stellar, outstanding parents who never have any problems with their children. You're seated in a room full of broken people who know that they need help and that's why they're here. That's why I'm here. I know that I'm in great need of God's grace. I know that left to my own devices, I'm a terrible, despicable, worthless human being in my own, but I know the only hope that I have for this life and the next is Jesus. That's why I'm here. I choose to be here with these people because these are some of the greatest people I've ever met in my entire life, the Hui College Church family. And I wanna serve Jesus with you guys. And it's a commitment to the faith together. Five final thoughts and we're done. First of all, every Christian should do some form of discipleship. You need to know what you believe from the Bible, why you believe it. Growing up for so long in, in church, I grew up in church. I remember my, one of my earliest memories is my mom teaching in Sunday school, my dad teaching uh, the teens Sunday school group. Remember we had a pool as a kid and we always had my, the, the teen group over at our house to eat pizza and play in the pool and stuff like that. I remember that as a kid just growing up around church. It's all I've ever known. But here's the thing, I didn't know what it actually meant to walk with Jesus. I didn't know what it meant to be discipled, to, to be taught what it means to be a committed follower of Christ. And so please don't, don't confuse the idea of being around church your whole life and actually knowing what it means to walk with Jesus. Those aren't the same things. So every Christian should go through some form of discipleship or another. Next, you need to have a growth plan in place. Just like, say for example, you wanna get better at playing the piano, you should have a plan for that. My piano playing ability in the last five years has increased by 0%, none. My piano playing ability in the last 10 years has increased by 0%. Now, ask me how many hours a week I spend playing the piano? <laughs> none, zip. If I wanna get better at playing the piano, what should I do? Maybe practice, maybe get a tutor, Maybe watch some YouTube videos. Maybe buy some program online and do that. I don't know. I've got to have a plan. I can't just hope I get better playing the piano. Many Christians think if I just show up on Sunday, maybe I'll get better. And look, I'm glad you're here, but if this is the only plan that you have for growth, you need to get a better plan. You need to think to yourself, I need to be in the Word every day, and I need to know where I'm going in the Word. <laughs> I've known people before who go, uh, I do my Bible reading like this in the morning. I just open it up, and I go, oh, that's what I was supposed to read today. 2 Kings 25, that's where I need to be. Yeah, that's gonna help me today. That's not a Bible reading plan. Well, isn't God sovereign? God's sovereign, but he's not random. Yeah. You can't just do that. You gotta have a plan in place. Know what you're reading in the Bible. Know why you're reading it. Again, you should be reading good Christian books. I don't like to read, but I know that I'm not smart, and I need to read. I wanna be better. I wanna grow as a man I'm gonna grow in my usefulness to Christ. Every books that don't even have to do with anything that I'm necessarily going through, but I wanna be able to help other people as well. I'm reading a book right now on fear and anxiety. Oh my soul, it's so good. 
And it's one of those things too that it's written by a Christian therapist and it's one of those things that as I read, I didn't think that I had a lot of fear and anxiety, but as I read, I realized, you know, I think I've got a lot of fear and anxiety that I didn't know about. But I want to take that, I want to pass it on to other people so they can help other people grow. But I got a growth plan in place. If you're a parent, you need to have a growth plan for your kids. If you're married, you need to have a growth plan for you and your spouse growing together. Growth doesn't happen by accident. Have a plan and put it in place. Next, seek accountability. Accountability is not a bad thing. It's a really, really good thing. You need people that are checking up on you to make sure that you're okay. I have a couple of pastors that I have a Wednesday phone call with that we catch up to see how we're doing, how our walk with God's going, challenges that we're facing, how we can pray for each other. At our men's leadership weekend that we had this past fall, we had divided our guys up into four different groups. And every four weeks, the same group of guys get together on a Saturday morning and pray and talk about the Bible together and talk about life and encourage each other. It's just another layer of accountability that we have. This is why you need to be in a small group on Wednesday nights or Tuesday nights. If you're a single adult, Friday nights. You need people that are looking out for you, asking how you're doing, how they can pray for you. Seeing the same people week after week. When you're not there, somebody says, hey, I didn't see you on Wednesday night. Is everything cool? That's what accountability looks like, and we all need that in our lives. Next, bring others on the journey with you. Again, if you're a husband, the first person you need to bring on your journey with you is your wife, 100%. Notice I didn't say, wives, you should bring your husbands on the journey because guys are the spiritual leaders in the home. That's what the Bible says. And sometimes guys say, well, I don't really know that much about the Bible. My wife knows more than me. Good, time to get caught up. Well, I don't really know how to do that. Great, that's why we have discipleship. I don't really know what it means to be a solid Christian man. Good, I'll pair you up with another solid Christian man to help you grow in godly manhood. But you bring other people on the journey. If you've got kids, bring your kids on the journey. If you're a single adult or your kids are grown or something like that, hey, look, bring a friend, neighbor, coworker on the journey. Hey, did you know this? Maybe you could just say to your neighbors, hey, guys, we're grilling some burgers this weekend. If you guys wanted to come over on Friday, we'd love to have you over. Throw some burgers on the grill, talk about life. And you can talk about what's important to you. And guess what? You're bringing somebody else on your journey and inviting them to come with you. Hey, maybe you're gonna grab a pie this week and take a, Easter, uh, I'm sorry, a Christmas Eve invite over to your neighbor with a pie this week. That's inviting somebody to come on your journey with you. Well, maybe they wouldn't come. Maybe they wouldn't, but maybe they would. In my lifetime, I've probably given out, I don't know, probably in excess of a 100,000 invitation to church. Again, doing that over a course of 15 plus years, probably giving away over 100,000 invitations to church. I'd be lucky if maybe 1,000 people have came. Lucky. Be lucky if two dozen of those hung around. It's not the point. The point's sowing seed, inviting other people to come on the journey. I'm thankful that Pat and Jane invited Angela and I to come on the journey with them. <laughs> Changed my life. I can tell you this, if it weren't for Pat and Jane Smith, there would be no who we call about Baptist church today. I say that with 100% certainty because we wouldn't even know what it meant to be solid Christians if someone hadn't loved us and invested in us. So bring other people on the journey with you. Final thought. Determine never to quit. I'm not gonna give up, I'm not gonna quit. Things will get hard, things will get difficult. Again, that's what Paul says when he says stand fast. It's to hold the line in face of enemy opposition. Opposition's coming, that's a given. And when it gets hard, you need to realize, I'm just gonna stick it out, I'm gonna stay the course, I'm gonna hang with it. And hopefully, 
You've got systems in place to keep you on track. I've got people that if I didn't show up on Sunday, they would come looking for me to find out why I'm not here. If I'm slipping in my Bible reading or my prayer or my desire for eternal things, I've got somebody in my life that would call me out on that to say, hey, I love you too much to allow you to continue to slip and slide. What can I do to help you? Because quitting is not an option. Giving up is not an option. I will see this through. Can't quit. Too much is at stake. But at the end of the day, you gotta stand on your own two feet. Whether I can see you or else be absent that I might hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one mind and one spirit striving together for the faith of the gospel. I don't know where you'll be 10 years from now, but I hope you'll see me walking with Jesus. I don't know where you'll be 20 years from now on a Sunday morning, but I hope you're gathered together with God's people worshiping the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Stand fast. It's worth it. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.